this episode of The Interface, I speak with Dr. Rafi Sahul, Director of Business Development for Amphenol Piezo Technology Products. We talk about his sensor technology developments in the medical, military, and commercial aerospace markets. We talk about transitioning from traveling around the world every single week to suddenly working from home over the last year. We talk about how he first became interested in material science and engineering at a young age, and how he then juggled his educational pursuits with his personal pursuits. And we talk about his Desert Island album, book, and old school movie. This is The Interface. So Rafi, where are you today? Where do I catch you? I know you have your nice Amphenol sensors background in our Zoom call here, but where are you actually physically located right now? Uh, I live in Orange County yeah. in California, in Irvine. Yeah, that's where I'm physically located. Yeah. So are you itching to get out? Because I know, well, first of all, let me back up before I get there yet, because uh, um, you and I have met and worked a little bit in the past, over the past few years, as you've become uh, more ingrained into the Amphenol world. Just tell everyone just real quick what your role is and what you do and, and your your elevator speech for Amphenol sensors in your role. Definitely, yeah. So I'm a director of business development uh, for the uh, Amphenol sensors group. And within that, I focus mainly on medical and military aerospace. And, uh, you know, we we work on the, uh, what was called like a Amphenol user technology products, which is APTP within the sensors group, uh, reporting to uh, to Pete, uh, Pete Strauss, basically. Um, so we focus on a lot of, uh, in, the, in the medical world, we focus on a lot of the ultrasonic based sensors. And then in the military world, as you know, like in the, we've been into ton of, ton of those uh, defense meetings. Uh, that's all related like sonar, you know, torpedo submarine, uh, pretty heavy, like Navy fleet type of uh, applications. So we make those sensors and transducers for those very critical fleet uh, based platforms. I know nothing about how this technology works. And when I say nothing, I'm not just trying to... I literally know nothing about how this works. You know, I mean, I'm I'm from the military and aerospace world, and I could kind of fake it well when I was in product management <laughs> for 10 years and talk about how these things are made and what they do and all that. I am completely clueless when it comes to sensors and sensor technologies. I find it incredibly fascinating, and it's so cool that they have become uh, more ingrained and part of Amphenol over the last, you know, six, seven years. That's um, right. yeah. um, but... Can you just describe, I guess, specifically for uh, medical first and then maybe military and aerospace, like what what are we talking about as far as technologies for these sensors are concerned? Yeah, so the fundamentally, like I would, you know, if you want to understand it a little bit, it's almost like uh, the world of sound, you know, all sound and uh, sonar and everything is basically, it's like talk and listening, right? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> That's what it comes down to. So when you actually like use those um, sound waves, you can actually penetrate uh, into medium. And uh, so what we make is a, we are actually vertically integrated. So we actually make the whole component, mm-hmm. the same element that goes into it, right? And that's called the piezoelectric uh, technology, which is around us everywhere. Like our bone is piezoelectric. And that's how, if you look at it, like, you know, how babies, when they start walking, uh, that's how their skeletal structure is formed because they give the uh, electric signal to the body and that's why when you go into space, you come back to in shorter because uh, the body thinks that, <laughs> you know, this person is not using a skeletal structure anymore. Let me get rid of it. Um, so that is, you know, and the uh, cellulose, you know, wood is, wood is actually piezoelectric. And if you look at like how, you know, the doctors talk about 
when you have like a gap in the teeth and then, you know, the, your teeth is like dropping or growing in one direction more than the other. It's all because of the piezoelectric, you know, properties, uh, which is all, all it does is a, it's an oxide material that provides a voltage signal when you, when you apply stress. And that's the definition mm. of means pressure. And ultimately, when you look at how the applications are based on using that, is you either use them to, you know, as actuators, meaning in the fuel injection lines, for example, like an automotive, you actually create that for actuation mechanisms, right? So it's electromechanical, very highly controllable. You can do like nanometer type resolution if you can, right? So that is why it's it's pretty highly popular there. But in the world of sound, you know, like I mentioned, is it's like speaking and listening. So whenever you actually, you know, uh, if you look at the torpedo or submarine or whatever, it's almost like they're speaking, you know, like they're basically projectors, right? And then when you actually receive the sound waves back, then they're basically listening. So that's, that is what the, you know, they are both capable of doing. And uh, if you look at some of the, even the audio, like a hearing aid, like a middle ear implants, one of the biggest technologies that I was working on many years ago, it actually became FDA approved like a couple of years ago. And that's actually a, the same kind of ultrasound that goes implanted in your, in your in a middle ear. Mm -hmm. That actually helps for the, um, you know, for hearing aid, Type of applications for uh, people with you know natural uh, you know audio issues. So again, so there's it is the, like I said you know it's the, it's it's around us everywhere. Uh, they are used as power transformers. That is actually in our backlight uh, displays in our computers. In, you know automotive fuel injectors, spark igniters. Uh, so it's 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 just like it's so funny how it is so much around us. That we actually never uh, people no no not know enough about it. <laughs> sure, sure. How much of what you then sell is, say, a standard catalog part versus a custom designed part? So in in our portfolio, I would say like fifty percent. Uh, we actually have a catalog for, uh, component that is all for industrial condition monitoring. Mm -hmm. And uh, what that does is like anytime you have any kind of moving machinery, like where you know. Uh, any rotating machinery or reciprocating you know, movement, like fans, uh, fans, compressors, pumps, you know, any of those type of, you know, rotating machinery, which is almost in industrial, in aerospace, you know, all the different, you know, turbine engine, power plant, windmills, right? Uh, so we use this piezoelectric to do the acceleration measurement. And then you can, gen you know, you can actually develop or understand the vibration condition. So if you, uh, you want to know, like when some, some machinery, very expensive, you know, power plant machinery is going to go out like a pump down. You know, if you go, actually, you're able to go and fix it. It's going to take you, you know, much easier and cheaper efficient compared to when it breaks down during a you know, production line running. So that's why they use this preventive condition monitoring. And those are quite a bit, uh, you know, in the catalog, uh, because we actually put them in, we kind of know what those standard, you know, moving equipment is. But pretty much other than those catalog portion for the industrial condition monitoring, everything else that we do is custom. Um, so that's why our programs are pretty highly involved, you know, customer involved, our engineering team has to be involved. Uh, like, uh, so it's, it's a, it's a, and every, every application. So we make, uh, for example, the air in line or the bubble detection in, in, in fusion pumps. You know, if you go to the hospital, they get your IV line. We actually make, it's a very critical component because if you get an air bubble into your vein, and then it, it'll cause like what is called like an occlusion or blockage. And then that can cause like a patient injury or death. Right. So it's a, it's a highly critical component and the, the, the failure rates for what FDA sets up the standard is like one billion, one parts per P, you know, per billion. <laughs> so yeah. if you have one failure for a, a billion uh, treatments, 
they'll have to recall the pump. So that is how high standard they have set for it, right? Because we don't want any kind of patient injury for a critical component like that. So for something like that, we almost apply to most of the major medical companies and every one of them is different. <laughs> yeah, sure. Because everybody's platform is different and we have to custom make it. Which is probably one of the main or maybe the main reason that I see you on the road all the time pre-COVID yeah. is because of this highly specialized partnership that has to go on between the customer yeah. and you guys in order to design exactly what they need. It's it's very specific when it comes to that technology, I'm assuming. Is that is that accurate to say? Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, uh, I've been like in a, in a customer meeting where I'll have a it'll start off with just a one person who is considering us a purchasing. And then when I walk in, 10 other people will show up, they're engineering and R&D and quality. And so I have to be able to speak all of that language yeah. and be able to make sure, because I'm, I'm at the very, very entry point, you know, opening up the door, making sure that the, the strategic discussions are set, where we're looking to be part of their platform, a particular platform they're getting in, but then also trying to do value add. And I also like, every time I go in, I never talk about just my, my business, right? I, I try to sell us a Amphenol. <laughs> so yeah. bring, I bring the whole Amphenol with me, right? All right. of the center and all of the, <laughs> and that's been quite, I think, successful. We actually had a one customer where uh, we expanded, uh, we were almost uh, a single product uh, for one you know, major medical company. We have almost like 30 or 40 different RFQs across four different Amphenol divisions going on right now. So <laughs> Wow, that's great. And that's something I enjoy too, right? Because learning more about and, and I try to do the same thing with the AMAO, for example, right? I, I, I go to like an author or somebody, I actually always try to introduce them to the other groups because, you know, if we all add more content in the platform, then we, we, we get more product, you know, content-based uh, intelligence. You're all aware of the, you know, ship sets and quantities and volumes and, you know, MRO, then it actually helps us to all grow together. You know? So how difficult has this last 15 months been for you then in that you can't do you know, you've been basically handcuffed to do your job in a certain regard because, you know, as you and I were talking just before we started recording here, I mean, you traveled right. almost every single week to right. a different yeah. spot around the world. I think I probably saw you. I know I saw you in California. I'd see you in yeah. D.C. when I was working with some shows. I'd see you in Paris. I'd see you everywhere. You know, anywhere yeah. we had a show, I'd see I'd see <laughs> Rafi there. It was, it was uncanny. And you haven't been yeah. able to do that since... Um, early last March or last, yeah, last March, I should say. So right. what have you been doing? How have you been uh, coping with that and, and figuring out a way to still do your job effectively um, over the last, you know, year plus? Yeah, I think the funny thing is like when I, uh, last year when we started, I think we were all in Phoenix, right? Uh, for the strategy and everything. Yeah. I had traveled uh, every week in from the beginning of the year. I uh, was at the CES and, you know, I think that's where Adam was when we talked about it at the, at the meeting. So it's like almost like every week we were all uh, traveling. And then on the day when they were making the national emergency announcement, I was actually in London. I was actually part of a NATO uh, military meeting with, uh, you know, 19 plus countries and all the chief of admirals and of major, uh, you know, European countries and, you know, all of the other ones. So we were all kind of holed up in, you know, Southampton. We were all kind of like talking about what's going on in Italy and, you know, and uh, that was like my third trip to UK, I think, within the year. Yeah. Uh, in the first three months, right? So, and uh, and I luckily I got back a day earlier, like I, the night before to London, and everybody else was coming the ne next day at the end of the conference. I just like, you know, uh, up and left. 
And then I heard the national emergency. I just basically rushed to the airport. <laughs> so, yeah. And and I was I was staying at Kensington Park, which normally takes like an hour and a half to go to Heathrow. It took me 20 minutes to get to the airport that day. Whoa. So it was like that, you know, that world was like that empty. Like Heathrow Airport to 20 minutes, that was like unbelievable. And I was like, and the roads were empty, seats were empty. So I got a lucky break and I was able to make, you know, make it back. So when, by the time I landed here in LA, they were actually starting to ground flights from UK. So a lot of my colleagues or other people who were attending the, you know, peers were attending the meeting, they all got stuck and hustling, you know, scrambling to get back. So I just got lucky by that one, you know, by getting to London one night earlier. <laughs> so, and I think so, so with like almost like 12 or 14 weeks of travel right before COVID, and even like after the national emergency, I still traveled domestically for the following week uh, until Amphenol announced, uh, you know, reduced air travel uh, before that. And it was like, uh, my initial thought was because I always do like travel and then when I come back, you know, there's like a certain amount of like remote. And I think we were all set up for some kind of like a remote working. And uh, because my interface is across like multiple sites, then it almost you know allows me to kind of, you know, be there as needed. Uh, but the hardest part was like trying, you know, because physical meeting and, and talking through all these platforms and intelligence and uh, that was like the most important part of, you know, getting through the, the immediate reaction was, oh, this is going to be hard. Yeah. You know, and, and most everybody was like looking at, okay, how is family coping and we're still trying to buy like toilet paper and we were, we were behind, <laughs> we didn't get the memo, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so we were like trying to cope up with that, but my initial thought was like, okay, you know, less travel, more time at home. We got to figure this out. It went from, from nothing to almost like, uh, you know, everybody like coming back into these calls and whatnot, all these customers around the world that we actually deal with into calls that extended into like two or three in the mornings. Mm. <laughs> so, so it was not what I was expecting at all because I thought, okay, less travel. I was like, okay, maybe there's a little bit more of, you know, time to like, you know, do all the fun projects that you want to do. And it actually went from that to almost like no time to eat, breathe, sleep, whatever. And so it, it actually was, you know, completely like the opposite reaction to how, you know, what I expected, uh, mostly because everybody was trying to like cope up with, you know, how to work uh, from home. And there was also like major, um, meetings and conferences that people are like trying to switch into the virtual mode. Mm-hmm. So I had like, you know, calls with some of the major, you know, military customers, like uh, European ones that the virtual conferences that start at three in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I had to like put an alarm to wake up or if I slept at all to actually join this virtual meeting at three in the morning. So it was kind of like, you know, crazy. And uh, my wife actually still asked me like, when are you going to start to travel? And I'm like, what? <laughs> And right to get like because you're like oh you spend more time at home when you were actually traveling, <laughs> right? Then when you were at home, so it's actually been the opposite. So although like you know the we were we were able to like get into those meetings and calls and not not that physical interaction where you you catch more than the outside the meeting topics. You know you actually you know sit down in the evening and have dinner or mm-hmm. you know into a little bit of the social mode and that's where most things come out. You know and, uh, and oh yeah. And you, like in conferences, it's never about the, 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 so much in the dates, like almost all the things that happen, uh, you know, um, so that's, that was one thing that was, you know, that I heavily missed. Uh, it did affect, uh, quite a bit of getting into a lot of new programs and whatnot, but it took a lot of phone calls and efforts and almost like following up on a weekly basis, getting into their personal life a little bit to see how they're doing. And, and that's, it was like a natural concern 
but you almost had to build a different level of customer intimacy mm. to be able to start moving, you know. So it was not the same as, because when I, when I go to China, like you spend like a week and then you get all the things that you get done and then you don't have to worry about calling them every day. And now it, it almost changed the entire, you know, nature of things. So it was like, a, you know, I wouldn't say like stressful. I would say more of a, a culture change that I had to adapt to, uh, to keep up to the level of, you know, activity that we actually needed to. Uh, to happen for our business. So it was kind of a, you know, change. <laughs> yeah. Are are you looking forward to getting back to that, at least a, a portion of it sometime soon? I could tell that it's yeah. probably yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, I think uh, because, you know, as you know, you know, you've been into that one conference where we had that Batman uh, thing on the Martech, if you remember, like, right? Yeah. Through- yeah. <laughs> so, and that attracted so many people to our booth, right? Right. Yeah. And so there are like, so what happens is now is you almost have to pick and choose who you're calling to, to go after. And, you know, you're proactively like doing that versus a lot of those incoming traffic that you attract in these, in this, uh, you know, meetings and conferences uh, and, and, and level of intelligence that you gather, right? Because our, our business, is so much based on dependent on customer intelligence, you know, in terms of what is happening, you know, and that is how you're able to forecast accurately. That's how you're able to know what their next gen platform is coming for the people. So that those key discussions don't come out as often in these meetings. And so I had to almost set it up into a part where you have to get into like a more one-on-one, mm-hmm. be able to like talk. Right. And uh, because if you have like a 10 people meeting, you know, there's like a five things on the agenda. Everybody wants to talk about it and get out, right? So you almost have to get into that. So I think in order to kind of, especially the way where we are right now, we are in this super growth mode for military aerospace and also in the medical, it requires quite a bit of that, you know, uh, you know, physical interaction or in-person interaction, I would say, to make sure that we are able to um, get into those intelligence discussions. So, I mean, I think one thing I think Adam mentioned earlier, and I think I agree with that, is like we won't be in the world of just pick up, a, you know, catch a flight to go visit this one customer meeting, which I never used to do anyways. I always used to maximize. But I'm saying like that, those days are gone. Like we won't actually spend a, just a one, you know, uh, catch a flight to go see one particular meeting or one customer. It's almost like we have to be more savvy enough to, uh, to spend the time wisely. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of travel. And I think, I think mostly I would say custom interactions are something that we can deal with, but the conference and the meetings where you're able to see more of those people. And that is kind of where I think we, you it certainly requires us to get back into the mode. Uh, and a lot of people are already calling and asking us to, you know, to register for conferences for the later part of the year. Uh, I'm getting my second shot this Friday or tomorrow, actually. All right. <laughs> so, Good for you. Yeah. Yeah, so I think hopefully I'll be able to get out and travel uh, after that. So, <laughs> well, it's good to hear, uh, and I know it's been you know for people that are in the sales and, and marketing and business development roles um, over the past year plus for Amphenol, it's been a unique time trying to adjust to you know that right. that drumbeat of just being on the road, being on the road, being on the road, being on the road, and on suddenly you're just you're trying to do the same job at home. You actually may end up working longer and all that, but so I, I give you credit for for managing all this, and hopefully it gets back to a little bit of normalcy here for you soon. So I'll switch gears now, um, go backwards, and then we'll work our way back up to the present time. 
when I interview people uh, for the for the podcast, I go and looked at your LinkedIn profile. You have some words on your profile. I still don't understand what they are. So, <laughs> so, so I thought I'd bring these up. You have a PhD in material science and engineering from Penn State, and I'm looking through some of your publications. So I, I got to read some of these just so people get this. So I hope you don't. I hope you don't mind because these are great. No, no, go ahead. Yeah. Giant electromechanical coupling of relaxer ferroelectrics controlled by polar nanoregion vibrations. <laughs> that sounds like that sounds like a barn burner. That sounds like something <laughs> Stephen King would write, right? <laughs> that was like a nature communications paper, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. There was another one here. Characterization of full set material constants of piezoelectric materials based on ultrasonic method and inverse impedance spectroscopy using only <laughs> one sample? One sample? Come on, Dr. Rafi. Shouldn't you have like 30 samples at least to make sure it's a valid sample? sample? Oh, no, no. That's not the that's not the samples that you're talking about. Oh, okay. All right. Sorry. I messed yeah, no. it all up. So the 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 IEEE standard for that, like basically when you when you do all this modeling, right? Because uh, um, when we do this uh, transducers, it requires like you know twenty different constants, and then you gotta you gotta cut the different you know modes and geometries and IEEE uh, sets of standards. So I actually try to come up with the method that actually can do it with just one mode, right? Yeah. That you can pick up all the twenty constants using just uh, because. When you have like really exotic material, like you're just coming up with the next gen, you know, all that, it's very hard to, you know, get these 20 different samples to to actually make those measurements. So that's why it was that. But <laughs> I think there, there, you picked up some of the really funny ones, actually. <laughs> well, yeah, there, there's a, there, I mean, there are some incredible publication titles. It's fantastic to read, actually. Um, I was incredibly impressed. And I mean that. How did you get into this? How did you get interested in this field? I mean, that's the obvious question to me, because this is not, you know, this isn't just kind of, you know, I get into sales and I talk to people. I mean, this <laughs> is some really complicated, uh, this is complicated topics that that you're learning. So how did you get into this? What what interested you in this? Yeah, it's, it's very ironic because my, my parents actually used to say that they don't ever actually remember me like sitting down and studying or ever with a book, right? Yeah. The, and I used to spend, you know, back in the days, we didn't have a lot of Googles and Wikipedias. So I used to spend a lot of time like reading, uh, but nobody actually looked at me as spending a lot of time, you know, doing anything know, like homework or whatever. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and I, almost like, I think I was like in the eighth or ninth grade, I was reading this Japanese author's uh, nanomaterial technology book. And at the time, nobody even knew what nanotechnology was. Right. I was just like curious and, you know, and, and I was reading this, Feynman's books and all that, you know, like very, very, very early. And uh, so I was always this curious kid, right? Who want to always understand why things work and how things work. And, and, but again, I would never actually engage in a lot of social discussions on it. It's like learning, learning, learning. Mm. My first job was actually based on nanotechnology. My first job was, and, you know, we were disrupting you know, so many things in terms of, uh, I was working on the uh, technology for the pad missile uh, you know, for both the vibration and also for the, uh, uh, the, the rocket nozzle. The, we were actually, I was actually making the rocket nozzle. <laughs> wow. Uh, um, so it was like kind of funny, but how that transition into, you know, and even in my, in my master's, which I did from Clemson on mechanical engineering and, um, 
I was doing quite a bit of work that combined materials, mechanical, you know, electrical, all multidisciplinary. Like it was like robotics and automation. It had finite elements. It's like it's got everything. And same thing with my undergrad. I was working on hybrid electric vehicles for a motorcycle. And you know, that I'm talking like in, you know, in the in the nineties, right? When yeah. nobody else came yeah. in the hybrid electric stuff. It was almost like a very, very randomly put together. Uh, if you look at it from now, when I look back at it, it all synchronized. But, you know, at the time, you know, like I was doing three projects for my undergrad when everybody was doing just one or struggling to do one. And, and I was doing that with no stress. Like I was like, what, you know, and, and the, and the university was like paying me grants to actually do those projects. Right. So they were giving me additional funds and I had, uh, for one of these batteries, I actually contacted like an Australian university for a particular redox battery that had like the higher efficiency. So I could understand like battery efficiencies and, you know, try to actually do a different one. And, you know, automated, the automated guided vehicle, like we're talking about, that was actually one of the project. And I had made the entire, you know, the separate motor and the drive cars and everything. So it's almost like a curiosity. I was like coding like assembly language, you know, working like, you know, TSRs. So it's like a, you know, and, and nobody would look at me and say that I'm a nerd by any means because I was also like partying and, you know, having fun all the time. <laughs> the only mode, that's the only mode that they actually saw me. Like, you know, that they are, I'm always like outside. I'm very social. I was, you know, I was playing all the sports and I was, you know, I was running all the clubs. I was running the college magazine and, you know, there was like, you know, very, very, um, you know, different, uh, you know, interaction around the boat, but all that, gave me the different perspectives. And that's why, I mean, my, my family comes from a business background. So to us, it's all about, you know, buy and sell and making it to the end user, right? It's always about making it an end user. So that was one of the big things that I changed in, in my first company where everybody was looking at like patents and papers. And I wrote some of these uh, proposals very early on the, uh, these SBAR grants where NSF actually took my first ever proposal that I wrote as a, as a master's the company actually said that you know, nobody writes these grants for, you know, these DOD level uh, with a master's, they normally have a PhD, right? At the time I didn't have a PhD. I did my PhD later as a part-time uh, working as a, you know, a general manager for a company. Mm -hmm. So uh, that was like a different story. But anyway, so when I actually did it, NSF, <laughs> NSF actually created the, uh, uh, used my proposals as a sample to say, hey, this is, this is how, an application is written because you actually are showing the end use. You want to make sure that the commercial application is there. And even DOD, I would always put like a dual use. And I would be talking to like, I was working with the chief engineers of TAD and everybody would, you know, I was like a trade out of college kid that they would listen to. And I'm like, I was like, I didn't know anything at the time that I was like, you know, I didn't know what, what I was disrupting or what I was doing. Hmm. <laughs> but it's like, you know, you look back and you say, okay, this is how the pieces fell together to, to where it came together. So. When did you sleep? <laughs> I mean, you sound like the busiest guy I've ever met in my life. I mean, you're doing all of this and you're still, you know, able to have, you know, a good time and, and hang out with the friends and, and kick it and do all that stuff. And yet you're doing all this super advanced level uh, research and analysis and writings and publications. Um I, I give you a tremendous amount of credit. I could focus on like two things, maybe. You had about 12 going on at one time while you're an undergrad, mind you. So uh, how did you manage to do all that? Is it just, you, or can you even explain it? It just, you just did it. 
No, I think I think mostly I I never get stressed out about anything. I've been to like in in a lot of different companies um, where you know anytime there's a situation, everybody panics, right? And my natural response to that is like uh, I give the example of uh, Toby Maguire in Sailor House Rules, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you know the guy. You know if you look at him, he the uh, Michael Caine actually tells him that uh, he has like a hole in the heart. And, uh, you know, so he cannot actually stress out and it will cost him like, you know, like a mortal scenario. Right. So it's almost like that for me. Right. And funny thing is I used that example for so many years and, uh, 2019, I had a surgery in my heart for a hole in the heart. Oh, <laughs> yeah. It was, it was like, it's like something that I found out like, you know, very, very late. It was just like a sudden uh, thing that happened when I was traveling to Europe. Oh man. So it almost like, uh, even without Michael Caine or somebody telling me, it was almost like my natural state was always, I mean, I get passionate and excited, but it's always about like, you know, always like try to find the solution, try to find the solution, mm -hmm. what steps. So no panic, no retreat, keep going. If it's the right direction, keep going, right? I think one thing I would always say is like, you know, when I look at some of my friends, like they come back from a trip, right? And they go on a Monday, come back on a Friday, they crashed the entire week and they're like, I cannot do anything, right? I'm, I'm just getting ready to do my laundry and pack my bags. Mine is like, I'll come back from a trip for 16 hours from Hong Kong or whatever. And I'll go to play tennis straight up from the, from LA airport. And uh, my wife is like, she expects that she knows that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and actually I picked up her sister one time and uh, from LA and I, I flew in from Hong Kong and she flew in domestically. And we both went home, she crashed. And, and I was like, okay, I'm going to go play tennis. You guys catch up. So, <laughs> and I play like racquetball at, you know, 4.30. I get up in the morning at 4.30 mm -hmm. and I play like racquetball like two hours in the morning, like on weekends. So sometimes, so I think the way I survived, you know, with all the socialization and everything else was to cut down on my, you know, sleep. <laughs> yeah. But which many people like say, oh, that's, that's not, that cannot be good for you. And the way I look at it is like, if I actually stress out about it, if I say, oh, I didn't sleep, I didn't sleep, I didn't sleep, then you actually cause that reaction. For me, it's like, I just get up and do stuff like, you know, as, as needed. And there are so many times where when you're traveling in, international, you have, you're doing this like, you know, nonstop interaction all day. Then you go back and catch up on all your work and email. So I'm up till like three, four in the morning, sometimes calling back your West Coast and all that. And I'm getting up like in three hours to go back to my conference again. Like yeah. nothing. And uh, so I don't know if I can explain it, but I, I hope like it doesn't come back to bite me. Uh, yeah, but, <laughs> but you know, I've been like pretty healthy, other than the the surgery that I had, which I I think they said uh, everybody's like you know. So I I hope like it's just a, a state of mind, and I think that actually allows you, and that I believe in it. Like you know, I always say, you know, you actually say whether you you know you're tired or you're stressed or whatever. It's all about you know uh, you know convincing yourself like to you know, and I, I think it's it's my natural state of not panicking. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. So when you're not working and you're not playing tennis and racquetball, so the other and sleeping, what do you do the other ten minutes of the day that are free for you? <laughs> no, actually, I actually spend quite a bit of time with my family. Yeah. We actually do so much, uh, so much together, and that's why I said like when I come back on a weekend, you know, when when most people like go crash, I, my weekends are packed with activities. Like I I do that racquetball thing early in the morning because. When they come down in the morning, like their breakfast is ready. And then, you know, then we are like going to the beach or you know, go to the pool or, you know, some other kids activities or, you know, we're having like a date night or whatever. I'm just saying like, you know, it's a, it's a, 
it's a non-stop stuff because I don't usually like do like this naps and I do power nap uh, when I'm in, you know, travel. Yeah. But you know, when I'm at home, I'm actually trying to spend that time more. And then I, and I spend all the time with their homeworks and kids. So, but if I kind of like, if you ask me like, okay, summarize how you do it, I have no idea. It's yeah. just like you, you make a list and keep cutting through it. And then you say, okay, these are all the things that need to get done. And then you just keep going. At it. So, <laughs> So I have I have no way to explain that. <laughs> no, I, I I understand. I, I get it. Yeah. So if I then took you and put you on a desert island by yourself, okay, deserted <laughs> island, no one around, uh, no work to do, but I allowed you to have one album, one book, and one movie. We'll start with album. Which album would you have with you? Which what would you bring with you? Uh. Hmm. I like uh, REM. Okay. Me too. Yeah, Which cool. album in particular? Is there one in particular? Yeah, the one I forget the name of the album. The uh, the one with the uh, Man on the Moon and without with us and all that. So I think it's called Document. Maybe I forget the name of the album. Document. I think is a little bit before that. Um, okay. Think Automatic for the People. Automatic for the People. Yeah. yeah. There you go. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so I got that too. Yeah. Yeah, That's these days one. we don't we don't go by CDs anymore, right? It's all the songs on YouTube, so I don't remember the album names anymore. <laughs> I, I know, but you know what? I, I you know, I do this show. I love albums, so we're going with yeah. albums. <laughs> usually, okay. usually the people right. under thirty are like albums. I don't know. I I just stream stuff. You know, I don't I don't know what an album is anymore. Uh, I'm I'm kidding. Kind of. Definitely, yeah. uh, how about a book? And please don't tell me it's going to be a book on nanotechnology. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like the I, mean, I, I read a lot of science fiction or other you know fiction. Uh, yeah. I would say the my favorite I would say is like um, Pillars of the Earth. Can follow it. I've heard of it. I don't. I don't think I've ever read it. Yeah, I think it was like one of those. It has so many ups and downs and emotions. I you know it, it's almost like a, to me it was like a Game of Thrones for back in the days. <laughs> so, uh, but not brutal. Yeah. <laughs> But it has it has a lot of uh, ups and downs and emotions. So I, that 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 it's like a big book. So if I'm if I'm on a desert island by myself, I would want something that I want to read over a few days. <laughs> so not finish up in a day. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And finally, a movie. What movie would you bring with you? Hmm. Think something like that where I'm gonna have to watch it all over again, all over again. I think old school. <laughs> <laughs> Or snatch. <laughs> and what a way to bring it back around to college. Here he is doing all these papers, writing all this stuff, getting hooked up with the DOD at a young age while he's out partying and, you know, hanging out with his friends. So he goes with old school. How appropriate is that? <laughs> well, that is that is actually kind of like because when I when I like interact with my friends or anybody, they kind of read from public profiles, but you almost like never, ever talk about you know what I do so much. You know, um, yeah. I think they they kind of glean uh, information, but I don't ever get into that detail, and I don't work in front of people either. So, <laughs> <laughs> no, I get it. Uh, but some great yeah. choices. So, uh, well, listen, Rafi, thank you very much for doing this today. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much. And I, I hope, like you know, if you need anything anytime uh, and any help, definitely I'll be glad to be there. 